Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic Aviation. Hello and welcome to the Fly Past podcast. I'm Hans from Kiera and today we are chatting to historic aviation author Jim Goodall. Hello, Jim. How's it going? Good morning from the colonies, as my buddies from England would say. <laughs> Jim, just um, uh, tell, tell us where you are in the world. Uh, I, live in, I live about 20 miles north of downtown Tucson, Arizona. Uh, in a town called Oro Valley. It's O-R-O Valley. It's the Valley of Gold. The Valley of Gold. I mean, it sounds, yes. That sounds very exotic. It's much yes. more exotic than anything uh, in Britain. Uh, right, right. Immediately, see what you've done. Um, I, I, you know, there's always a sort of a frisson of excitement about uh, doing a podcast when there's kind of like 5,000 miles or so separating us. It makes me feel really good. Yeah, well, I had uh, before I, before I lived here, I was the associate curator at the Pacific Aviation Museum in Pearl Harbor. Wow! And I, I, and, I and before that, I was with the Museum of Flight uh, at the Restoration Center. I was in charge of the restoration of the only De, ha- De Havilland Comet Mark IV C in this hemisphere. Wow! Yeah, it's, a, it's an ex-Mexican airplane. It was abandoned at Payne Field. I was asked to you know, head up the restoration back in, in 1999, and this is before I even moved to the greater Seattle area. And I got there, the first time I saw it, my, my thoughts were, oh, my God, I need 10 gallons of gas and, you know, or petrol, as you call it, and a match. <laughs> it, was, it had been filled with water. So I, I've had, I probably have more time working on a de Havilland Comet than most anybody in the UK, <laughs> 41,000 hours of my time, not counting the 80 volunteers working for me to make that airplane look beautiful. 21,000 hours, you know, right. in the pie chart of your life, Jim, that's like, that seems like it's a reasonable chunk, doesn't it? It was 10 years. <laughs> I mean, I worked on it for 10 years, but you know, uh, you had asked and people, yeah, people have asked me in the past, how did I how did I get involved in aviation and why do I have the passions, the passions that I have? And my explanation is when I was five or six, we were living in San Jose, California, south of San Francisco. It was still daylight out. So I'm not sure what time of the year it was, but it's probably uh, fairly, fairly close to midsummer. And my, my dad came into the room and he said, Jimmy, I don't know what's coming, but you have to see it. So we went outside and all you could hear was a, a rumbling roar. I mean, it was going, ah, it was, it was, it was like nothing you've ever heard before. And over the coast mountains heading to Travis Air Force Base were not one, not two, but 24 Convair B-36s. Those are the ones with the six pusher props and the four jet engines. And, and they had been in Guam as a show of force to the Chinese and to the North Koreans, probably during the middle of the Korean War. And when they left, when they left Guam, they headed south, went through the Straits of Formosa, uh, just to let the Chinese know they were there to, you know, to protect uh, the Taiwanese, and then headed home. They started out with like 38 or 39 B-36s, but only 24 uh, could make it all the way back because 
the re- reliability. And that's where my passion for airplanes really started. But, uh, you know, you fast forward, I'm now about uh, 11 years old, 10 or 11. I'm living in Mountain View, which is the home of the center of Silicon Valley today. And my best friend's dad was base commander at Moffett Field Naval Air Station. I was referred to as Danny Smith's, I mean, Captain Smith's son, the, the base commander, and that friend of his. And I was that friend of his. And we went into a big hangar and we were invisible to most everybody there. We rode our bicycles everywhere, but the active duty ramp or the, or the runway, we were in all the hangars. No one stopped us. And at the north end of the big hangar, that's hangar one. That's when they had, uh, you can put, uh, uh, an airship the size of the Shenandoah or the Akron in there. Big, big hangar. The far end was an area that was cordoned off, had curtains, had keep out, but there were no guards. So here's, you know, two 10-year-olds, you know, ride their bike to, you know, to the uh, far, end, far end of hangar one, park their bikes. We go behind the curtains and there, there is the still classified XF-104 Starfighter. So that was that was my first introduction to to Kelly Johnson's incredible skunk works. The funny part of it, you know, Danny said, hey, get in the cockpit. So we moved the boarding ladder over. I got in, closed the canopy. I was in there for about two or three minutes and started getting a little bit nervous and a little bit claustrophobic. So I went to unlatch the canopy and it jammed. And uh, we had to call shore patrol and the, Mar- and the Marine guards to get me out. My butt still hurts, you know, 70 some odd years, 60 some odd years later. <laughs> well, I was, I was just going to say, actually, it's, um, you know, you mentioned Skunk Works, which, of course, is, uh, you know, why we're why we're here chatting um, in a way, isn't it, Jim? You've just um, written um, what is an incredible book, um, 75 Years of the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works. Uh, let me just describe this to people. Just uh, This is a proper, beautiful coffee table book, isn't it? It's probably 25 centimetres high, 30 centimetres wide, a real kind of thick tome this is. And this is your, your uh, incredible history um, of the Skunk Works. And, you know, when, when are you talking now about the... Uh, the things as a 10, 11 year old that really you can trace back to why you ended up writing this. Right. Well, I mean, like I say we were all over Moffat, we and everybody knew who we were. So that's that's where my my true passion for the skunk works came, you know, came into uh, play. Fast forward to 1964. It's February 1964. I get a set of orders. Temporary duty orders where I was stationed in Denver, Colorado, to go to Edwards Air Force Base to help uh, install some ground-based telemetry for three airplanes that were going through Category 1 testing. One of them was the YC-141 Starlifter. Uh, that's, that's a Lockheed airplane transport. The next one was the North American Aviation XB-70. And the third one was classified. So I get I, I arrive in uh, Edwards very, very late February, Saturday morning, February 29th, leap year. All of a sudden, all the fire collections were going off on the flight line. Now, I, we, I, the barracks where, where I was staying was eight miles from the flight line. 
So I went running out to my truck because I had a flight line badge. And I was going to go down there to see what happened, if there was a crash or whatever. And someone had already taken the truck. Well, it turns out that two YF-12 Blackbirds had flown in from Area 51 into Edwards for their first formal unveiling, which didn't happen until September, but they, were, they, were, they wanted, it, wanted it to be visible. So I didn't get to see it that day. And uh, fast forward to uh, March 10th, it's a Tuesday. I have the day, I have the next day off, the next couple of days off as compensation time for overtime. You can't, you can't pay a, a military guy overtime, but you get them time off if they you know, work long hours. So I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the shuttle airplane to take me from Edwards to the Northrop facility in a suburb of LA. And I hear this roar. I mean, it is loud. And I go running down the flight line and I look at where the XB-70 engine test pad is. And there was a black airplane fire coming out of the rear end, blowing smoke and debris all the way across to Rogers Dry Lake. But the thing that the thing was just too big to be the X-15. And about that time I said, hey, we're, we're loading. So I went running into the it was a Piaggio. It's a gull wing pusher prop, uh, 1950s, late 50s vintage, early 60s. So we took off and we took off directly over Rogers Dry Lake and we banked over this black thing that had been you know, spewing you know, debris across the dry lake bed. And I looked down, the airplane banked down. I'm sitting next to the window. I look out. I am looking at the top of the world's fastest airplane, the Blackbird. No, the world hadn't seen it yet. And I just, I could not, I could not believe my eyes. The following Monday morning, I got a set of work orders for the Lockheed hangar. And I went walking in there. Now I'm 18 years old. I joined the Air Force because I love airplanes. And here I walk into the Lockheed hangar. I have my, on my right badges and everything else. And I open the double doors. And they're st staring me on the rear end of two blackbirds. Now, this is, a, I mean, I'm a kid. I like Buck Rogers and, and <laughs> you know, those types of things way back when. And to be that close to that. And you don't realize how big a blackbird is. You have one at Duxford. Yeah. I, I was there. I was there in, in 02 for the uh, 50th anniversary of the celebration of the comet going into commercial service. So uh, that's what that's where my insanity, if you want to call it insanity, began collecting information on the Blackbird. So now I'm out of the service. I'm uh, living in L.A., but I still had this fascination with the Blackbird. And I wrote Lockheed Air Force, CIA and uh, Department of Defense. I, requ I requested and I was willing to pay the published cost of printing. I wanted about a dozen various shots of the SR-71 and the YF-12. And their official policy back then was not to cooperate. So because they didn't cooperate, I started digging. The deeper I dug, the more I found, the more I found, the deeper I dug. And to quote Ben Rich, who was the former president of the Lockheed Skunk Works, uh, no one from a historical point of view knows more about the Blackbirds than me. 
because it was a compartmental program, if you worked on if you worked on a widget over here, the guy sitting at the next cubicle over couldn't ask you, hey, where does that go in the airplane? What does it do? I never had those restrictions. So I started gathering. I spent 50 years gathering in, up information on the Blackbird that that lay, it led to the passion of all you know, to me of all things Blackbird. And it just sort of snowballed. Uh, I hated term papers in school. I don't care if it was a subject I liked or if it was something that was you know, shoved down my throat that I had, you know, that I had to respond to. But the uh, Osprey book, The 75 Years the Lockheed Skunk Works, that's my 27th book. My last half dozen books have all been pictorials, as where the other ones have been a lot of text but a lot of photos as well. And it's just, I don't know, I had, I had a, a ball putting it together. I'm already, I'm already an expert in written books on the Blackbird, on the F-117. I'd helped guys on the U-2, very, very familiar with the F-104. Um, my unit was a C-130 unit. So there was a good bulk of, of Lockheed Skunk Works airplanes that I was intimately familiar with. So when the uh, timing came around for the 75th anniversary of the beginning of Skunk Works, I contacted uh, Jeff Babion at, at the Skunk Works there in Palmdale and asked if he was interested in a book on 75 years of Lucky Skunk Works. And he got all excited. He has my Blackbird book, which he absolutely loves. So he, he ran it up to corporate to see if they would sponsor it. And they came back and said, the bean counters said no, uh, but I, you know, they were very, very helpful in putting together, you know, giving me information on things I didn't know, didn't know existed. There are two programs in there that they wouldn't let me put photos in, but I did have an ex excellent, you know, I, a very, very good uh, text on the subject, but it, it just sort of fell into place. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't be more, I couldn't be more delighted and pleased how Osprey took took my layout and put it in together what it, what it looks like today. I'm I'm very very thrilled. They did an incredible job. Everybody there from Marcus on down has been you know fun to work with, and it's just uh, it's who I am was it was you know it was, it was evolution if you want to call it that going from uh, softbound squadron signal type book books and then I from there I went to motor books. I did the F-117, the very first book on the F-117, which I co-authored with uh, another Brit, uh, Bill Sweetman. Mm -hmm. Bill was at Interavia and uh, a few other Brit publications and then uh, immigrated to, you know, to the States. And now he works for uh, Northrop Grumman in their uh, communications and public relations you know, department. So, so you've got obviously you're a, you're an expert on skunk works. You're also you know quite a lot about Area 51, don't you, Joe? I, I, you're you're a guy that's got a lot of secrets. Well, no, well, <laughs> I have investigated a lot of places that are our secret. I have been to the fence line or on top of mountaintops overlooking Area 51 and Tonopah Test Range, which is about 80 miles away. 80 some odd times in the last 40 years. I've been doing this forever. I've been going out in the desert, snooping on the government. Even when I was in the, even when I was in the military, I did that. 
It's just, it's, it's who I am, but my passion, my, my passions have gotten me a, a rider in a ballistic missile submarine to 400 feet. And it was going out in patrol, but when it goes out, initially it will do angles and dangles. So it'll go down, come back up, run some tests, come back into uh, discovery Bay there in Puget sound, drop off contractor personnel and, and myself included. And they were going on patrol for, uh, for uh, 78 days because of my writings. I landed on the aircraft carrier. I landed on the Abraham Lincoln. So I'm a member of tail hook. <laughs> I spent a couple of days on, you know, as they're doing carrier quals, but my real claim to fame. And it's, I think it's a picture of it in the, in the book, uh, Ben rich, then the president of skunk works at the end, but he was Kelly Johnson's right-hand man. For some reason, Ben Rich took me under his wing and we, were, we corresponded either uh, usually by phone, either I would call him or he, he would call me. And we would just chat about airplanes. And uh, that went on about once a quarter for 25 years. And in August of 89, Ben called me at home and he said, Jim, you know, the world doesn't know it yet. It hasn't made the papers, but I got it from the horse's mouth. The Blackbirds are not going to make it through Congress. And if anyone could scrounge one, it's you. Now, I retired as a master sergeant with the Minnesota Air Guard. I had five years active duty, a 10-year break, and then uh, 21 years with the Guard. So here I Ben Rich is telling me I can get a Blackbird, probably one of them that doesn't fly. Now, how do you move a 50,000 pound airplane that's 105, 106 feet long, 58 feet wide? How do you move it from California to Minnesota? So I decided in the Air National Guard, you can violate the chain of command without getting in trouble, active duty, you know, you'd find yourself, you know, chained and beaten with the cattails, you know, your whips, and maybe, maybe even keel hold me, but in the air guard, you can get away with it. So I called, I called the adjutant general of the state of New York's uh, army and air guard and got hold of his secretary. And I said, this is, this is uh, Sergeant Goodall with the 133rd is general Weaver available. Just a minute, Sarge, I'll put you through. I mean, that doesn't happen in, in, in real life, in the active duty. So General Weaver gets on and said, Sarge, how can I help you? And I said, sir, I have a proposition for you. I said, what would that be? I said, how would the New York Air Guard like to move the world's fastest airplane in a couple of your C-5s? There was dead silence for about 10 seconds. And he said, you mean the Blackbird? I said, yes, sir, General, the Blackbird. He said, when you're ready, you call, we'll haul. So I got two Blackbirds, 24 crew members for eight days for each airplane to move the fuselage and the engine nacelles. The cost per day, if I had had to lease the, the C-5, was over $900,000 a day plus gas. And I got these, you know, these airplanes and the crew members for outsized cargo loading training. So on 
October 27, 1991, we loaded the fuselage of the eighth production A-12 Blackbird into the belly of a Lockheed C-5 Galaxy. Now, we had about an inch and a half of clearance on, on the floor rails, had the wings cut off, and I had put a cho- wheel chock on, on, underneath the canopy because the counterbalance was out of nitrogen. And I go in, we take off, we're in the air, uh, no, maybe 30 minutes, and the, and the chief, the E-9, is uh, loadmaster is heading down to uh, the lower deck. And I said, can I go with you? And he said, well, normally the answer would be no, because you're not a crew member. But this whole thing is your, is your baby, so yes, you can come down with me. So he went down. I, I climbed up in the landing gear. I, went, I walked along the chines. I opened the canopy. I had a five-gallon bucket in there with a cushion. And I was in there for about 45 minutes going zoom, zoom, zoom. And all of a sudden, I got a, na- a knock on the bottom. I said, hey, we got to go back upstairs. So up we go. And then uh, we're about 40 minutes out from Minnesota. The chief comes back and he said, the boss said you can ride in the cockpit when we land. I'm already up in the, the forward section of the C5 cockpit area. He said, no, no, the one downstairs. So it turns out I'm, I have the distinction of being the only person on the planet to have been in the cockpit of a Blackbird at 33,000 feet at Mach 0.72 inside another airplane. It's a good one for the CV. <laughs> that is uh, it's an incredible. Um, that is an incredible story. I mean, the 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 blackbird is just so synonymous with um, the skunk works, isn't it? I mean, and I- incredible, obviously detailed um, in in the book. But a lot of that technology was, you know, pretty much invented from scratch, wasn't it? Well, there there's absolutely nothing in the blackbird that it's off the shelf aviation related. Absolutely everything had to be invented. And back when they were putting uh, the design requirements together and started building the airplane, Kelly told everybody on the, sh- on, the, on the production floor and all their managers and all the engineers, if you can save one pound for every pound of weight you save on this airplane, I'll pay you $100. Now, back in 1962 and 61, $100 was probably, probably the equivalent of $1,000 or $1,500 today. Now, $1,500 US dollars, which would, would be what, uh, 1,100 uh, pounds sterling or something like that. And that was, that was great for, ba- you know, for back then where you can buy a car for, for $3,000 or a house for $15,000. Can't do that anymore. Can't build a garage. <laughs> but they were ne- they were never able to they were never never able to find off the shelf hardware. Now the, there's instrumentation in there that came out of a C-130 and some other Lockheed airplanes. But pretty much all the structure, the composite, the airframe is made with titanium. And the last of the fifty Blackbirds built, the last twenty five, which were the operational birds were all built with Soviet-supplied titanium sponge. It was you make the titanium the metal from. And so the Soviets, now, the, now called the Russians, uh, 
they were responsible for Lockheed building the Blackbird and having the capability to overfly the Soviet Union, which it never did. But it's um, it's it's sort of it's sort of something to laugh at. <laughs> it's uh, I've interviewed everybody who's crashed one. I've interviewed all of the original test pilots. I did the same thing on the F one seventeen. I let's say I was very familiar with the U two. So putting together the seventy five years of the Lockheed Skunk Works, eighty percent of the work had already been done by me, as far as all the research and whatever. I mean, there's there's there are a, a few programs in there I had no idea of. There's there's some s- small ones or some funny ones, but probably the most incredible thing that the Skunk Works is working on today, and it's near the end of the book, it's the compact fusion reactor, and that is a non-radioactive nuclear power plant, if you want to call it that. That they said when they're done, they'll they, it will fit into a 40-foot container box. And it has the ability to power a city or a town of a hundred thousand. Now, if they can get it small enough, they can put it into a wide body, you know, even you know, even a, a A380, if you want to go, you know, go to the ridiculous size of a large airplane and you could have a power plant in there with enough power where they could take the turbo jets out and just put high efficiency electric motors in and you could literally fly forever. And the thing about it, the reason why they're developing it, the military needs to have the ability to go to a remote site. If you know, like, let's say go out in the middle of the Saudi frontier. You can stand atop your Humvee with your, the best binoculars you have and do a sweep of 360 degrees, and it's tabletop flat. There's absolutely nothing there. Uh, the reason I know that buddy of mine was in the Army, he had to do that. And he said, the only reason they knew where to stop is their GPS said, this is where you're supposed to be. But they could be out there in the middle of nowhere with this compact fusion reactor, bring it in on a C-5 or a C-17, unload it. All of a sudden, you have a nuclear power plant that can empower your entire base. You're not, you know, you're not dependent on the locals. You're not dependent on you know, diesel generators and, and whatever. So that's, that's probably the most exciting thing from my perspective that the Skunk Works is working on. Mm-hmm. But every, now, I, I cover 40 plus programs in the book. And I try to give all the specifications, how many were built, uh, how long, when did first flight, last flight, maybe it never went into production. But of the 40, there's probably 40 that are still classified top secret that I, I have some inklings for, but I have no data on. Really? I, mean, I saw a buddy of mine just retired 34 years of Skunk Works. Now, I, I don't push him for anything because he was responsible for maintaining security. At, at Skunk Works. But he, he, he showed me a list of just acronyms and code, code names. He just showed me a piece of paper, didn't keep, let, me, didn't let me keep it. And there were about 50 or 60 programs in there that he had personally worked on. And some of them were, you know, were small pieces. Some of them were, you know, had to do with you know, inlets. Some of them it had to do with uh, adaptive manufacturing and stuff like that. But it, 
but I, I cover all the important ones and I'm, I'm just thrilled to be, you know, to, to do this. My very, very dear friend, Jay Miller did the 50th anniversary book, but he's a, te- he, you know, it was mostly text and he uses five or six point type so he can get the most verbiage in, in the, you know, in the least number of pages. And, and mine's primarily a photo essay. There's 1,100 photos in there, and a good majority of them have never been in print, and some of them have never seen the light of day. You know, we're talking about the Army is, is, is looking for a fast attack aircraft to replace the uh, UH-1 Hueys and the uh, Apaches. Well, they had the Cheyenne, which was a big helicopter. It was rigid rotor. It went to 280 knots back in 1967. But because it, because it was so large and because they didn't, we didn't have computers back then, uh, they had no way for the computers to perform active control on a rigid rotor airplane or helicopter. Um, I actually sat in one. We had one in Minneapolis at the Army Reserve Base for it was there about six or seven years. I went over there, sat in the cockpit, walked around, kicked the tires. It's a big helicopter. So it seems like every time I turned around, I was involved or got exposed to something that came out of the skunk works. Mm-hmm. And so this was a natural progression to go from uh, to go in to do the 75 years. Well, look, it, it is an absolutely Absolutely incredible book. When's it out? Just remind people of when it, of, of, of when they can buy this, Jim. Well, I mean, I've, I've heard so many dates. One of them is May 13th. That's the one I've heard. And then I heard uh, someone said Google, not Google, but Amazon uh, are saying that it's going to be uh, uh, July 11th. Yeah, uh, they know. It, yeah. And it was, it was supposed to have been done by February middle of February, but I, I'm sure COVID, you know, the COVID uh, pandemic. Oh, yeah, just slowed it, all, slowed it all down, didn't it? But um, yeah. I, I think we, we could talk for days about all this stuff, but um, suffice to say, you know, this is an amazing book. Um, check it out when it comes out on uh, May 13th. I think you'd be a, a very interesting uh, few stories down the pub if we were doing, a, if we were doing this podcast, uh, you know, like a, in, a, in a pub, I reckon, you know. Yeah, one, one, of the, one of the funny things is I have some D21 photos in the, in the book, and they, they were in my other, they were in my big Blackbird book, that senior people at the Skunk Works had no idea that Lockheed had built something like the D21. Because internally, and it wasn't until a couple of years ago that they declassified the existence of the D-21 drone. And that's the one they use uh, uh, to overfly China. And the reason why it was developed on May 1st, 1960, when Francis Gary Powers was shot down over Soviet Union, he was captured alive. And he was in, he was in prison for 15 months. And they, they, they made a movie out of it, I think called The Bridge. But they did, a, they did a, a spy swap. But part of the terms and conditions of Francis Gary Powers' release, President Eisenhower assured and signed a, a treaty to first the cessation or the ending of all manned overflights by the U.S. over Soviet territory and their uh, allies, which was the Warsaw Pact. 
So we had to go back to the drawing boards because that's what the A-12 Blackbird was designed for to overfly the Soviet Union. So Kelly got hold of uh, Bob Murphy and, and told Bob, I'm going to send you a drawing of, of something and I need, I need you to build up a prototype. We're going to use a Mark IV ramjet and it's going to be a baby A-12 for Blackbird. And he did. He, he put a, built up a, a wooden mock-up. Initially, it was launched on top of a mother airplane, Blackbird. And this, they built two of those. And the, the sole example is at the Museum of Flight in Seattle. And I helped populate most of the cockpit uh, with instruments. So um, you know, they put together the development process. They uh, did a bunch of flight testing. And Kelly Johnson said the D-21 tagboard program was his most successful failure ever in his time at the Skunk Works. And they were taking state-of-the-art propulsion and airframe and coupling it with 1940s electrics. They had big relays. They had to use high-temperature wires that are very, very stiff and, and hard to maneuver. But they had a cannon plug, had it over 100 pins to it. And you try to put it together in a tight spot. You bend one of those pins, that's going to screw the thing up. They lost uh, you know, quite a few of them during, during testing, what they called the Captain Hook operations. They had four operational flights over China. But on the fourth launch off of the mother airplane, Blackbird, Bill Park was the pilot. Ray Torek was the launch control officer. On the first three launches, the airplane was going in, into a 0.9 G arc, and it worked fine. You know, they, 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 some of them didn't. You know, engines flamed out too soon, or there was some type of failure, but the launch was successful. So Kelly brought, you know, asked Bill Park, his chief pilot, on your fourth launch, I want you to launch at, at 1 G, not 0.9, but I want you to straighten level. And uh, Bill Park says, okay. And then, then Kelly said, in your opinion, do you believe that a line pilot flying this airplane in a combat environment would be able to maintain that 0.9 G uh, separation arc? Bill said, no. That's when Kelly said, okay, we'll go do it at 1 G. So it was July 30th, 1966. They're about 200 miles off the uh, coast of California, Southern California. And that mo morning during the briefing, the ceiling was broken clouds at 5,000 feet and fairly rough seas. So they took off that morning and they're heading out to the Pacific Missile Range. And they get to the launch point and they launch, they launch the D-21. It goes up. As it goes to the bow wake, they believe it had an asymmetrical unstart. And, they, and the drone comes back down and crashes into the, into the Blackbird. Now, the first thing that happened, Bill Park thought with the release of the drone, there was a shift in the, in the center of gravity. So he gave it some forward stick because it was pitching up. He then said, I knew something was wrong when things started going by me this way. <laughs> he said, that wasn't a good sign. So they were at 85,000 feet almost 30,000 meters. They rode the forward fuselage down from 85,000 feet to about 60,000 feet as it's twirling and tumbling. 
Bill said he went through a half a dozen or more five to six G positive to five or six G negatives. And he always felt that it was always safer in the airplane until it was safer outside the airplane. So at 65,000 feet, he opted to initiate an ejection sequence. So he, he told Ray Torek, eject, eject. He ejected. Both of them left the airplane fine. Bill Parker's come down. The first thing that happens is your faceplate freezes up because a faceplate heater is external to the suit. But you have 40 minutes of oxygen. But you fire the seat, you go up, there's, a six, there's an 18-inch stabilization chute that opens up and puts your butt into the airstream, even at Mach 3. Indicated airspeed is less than 350 knots. There's only four-tenths of a percent of the atmosphere there. So then when you start going uh, vertical, that 18-inch chute is cut and a six-foot stabilization chute opens up. This to keep you from going supersonic because you don't have any wind resistance up there. And Bill Park said he was sitting in the ejection seat. He can't see how high he is. And he kept saying to himself, he said he said this over a thousand times, Lockheed promised me that the automatic sequence in the seat would separate me at 15,000 feet. And he kept me and uh, his hands are frozen. And and, he's 70 70 below zero up there where he ejected. So finally, uh, he hits 15,000 feet. The belts are cut. He's pushed out of the seat. Uh, His survival pack and his one-man life raft is on the lanyard below him. He opens up his visor. He sees the clouds. He's been told that ceiling's at 5,000 feet. So he figures when he gets through the clouds, he still has 5,000 feet to prepare to hit the water. Well, from the time the briefing was at 6.30 a.m. until he hit the water at about 1 p.m. that same day, the ceiling had gone from 5,000 feet to sea level. So as soon as he hit the clouds, he was in the water. And he went under, he popped back up, um, he, had, he had already inflated his uh, May West flotation device, but it wasn't adequate. He's in 10-foot seas. He's out of oxygen. He has about two inches of freeboard between the water and the bottom of his uh, open visor. So yeah, he's trying to get into this one-man life raft, and he can't. He tried two times. He's getting exhausted. His hands are still frozen from the ride down from 70, you know, from 85,000 feet. And finally, he realizes he has water halfway up to his calf. And he said, I gotta, I, it, if I don't get in the raft now, I'm dead. So he said from the ends of his toenails to the end of his hair follicles, every ounce of energy he had. And he let out a scream. I mean, you probably could hear it in, in Point Magoo and pulled himself in. Ray Torek. The backseater ejected successfully, but broke his arm on the way out. There was a camera bracket in there, and he broke his arm. And he hit the water the same as, uh, same as Bill Park. But with only one arm working, he couldn't get into his life raft. So he ended up drowning. Here he survived a midair collision at 2,000 miles an hour at 80,000 feet or 85,000 feet. 
he rode a, the broken airplane down 15 to 20,000 feet before he ejects. He ejected successfully on a stricken airplane, only to break his arm, hit the water, and not be able to get in his life raft and drowned. Um, and that was just that was just a crunch aim. The D21 program or tagboard program being launched off the Blackbird ended that day. Kelly says, I'm not going to risk another pilot or crew member. So they figured that, you know, the X-15 and the D-21 were similar size and weight. Uh, we'll, build a, we'll build a pylon similar to that of the X-15 pylon. And we'll get, it, we'll get two B-52s. Uh, we'll put two D-21 drones on it, and that will be the launch aircraft. So that's what they did. They ended up modifying the, you know, the two B-52s, 61 balls, 21 and 60 balls, 36. And they're, they're you know, I think they're both at Barksdale Air Force Base now because those two airframes are still active duty. The Air Force Museum will get uh, one of the two when they retire that those particular airframes and they will build a, they'll build a set of pylons and mount two D21 drones on them mm-hmm. and, and, a, and a fake booster. So it's, it seems like every every time I turn around, I, you know, I, I something else from the skunk works came into my life, and the and the end result is the book. Well, look, it's an amazing, as I said, it's an amazing book. Um, look, Jim, thank you so much for your time. It's been my pleasure. Incredible uh, talking to you. Um, and look, let, come on again, come on again. We can uh, we, we, we'll do we'll do it again. I reckon you've got loads. I reckon you could sort of, you could you could do you could do this podcast yourself every week actually. Well, now earlier I don't I don't know how far you want to go, but earlier you you, you asked about Area Fifty One. I've actually I know I was in Area Fifty One officially in nineteen sixty four. I didn't see anything. I heard a lot of I heard some real loud airplanes. Are you, which, sure? Are you just saying that? No, just no, I that had, didn't see anything. That's what I had you to say. I had to install some companion equipment that I had in the Lockheed hangar. I was responsible for for, uh, installing and initially supporting ground-based telemetry for category one testing. So I was told one day, I said, uh, you got to be uh, in front of base ops at 630. Uh, You're going somewhere to install some equipment. It was a Fairchild F-27. I think it was made that the British version was from Fokker, German mm-hmm. company. Yeah. And we got in, we got in into the uh, F-27. The windows were blocked. You couldn't see out the windows. We took off. We flew for 90 minutes, 90 to 120 minutes, landed in the desert. We pulled up in front of some hangars. They had school buses on either side. Uh, so you couldn't see anything. They were, we were told not to look around, just to go straight into the building. We're in there for about five hours. They brought in box lunches and, and then we left. And I didn't realize at the time, but I was in Area 51. Subsequently, um, I have snuck into the area. I've been three miles in and I was, I was, it was middle of winter. It was 30 degrees out. And I was, I think I probably lost five pounds just perspiring because I was so nervous. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I've, I've, you know, I've been out in the desert. I've had little red dots on my chest. I've been harassed by the, uh, 
by both the contract security and by the local sheriffs in Lincoln and Esmeralda County there in the state of Nevada. But it's it's given me purpose. And, and, and for, like I said earlier in the beginning, for a guy that hated term papers and hated writing, uh, I wanted to be an artist at one time. And I was I was convinced not to by uh, by world famous artists. So I guess the closest thing I get to, to you know, wanting to be an artist was I did. The, I did primarily the layout for for all my books. And it's just it's, it's fun. It keeps my brain working. I mean, I'm I'm 76. I, I drive a 430 horsepower, 185 mile an hour Corvette. And I just love life. And this this was a fun project. And again, I'm just thrilled with how I've been you know been treated and everything by Osprey. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, well, we we appreciate your time, Jim. Um, thank you very much for talking to us. Uh, and um, thank you for listening. Uh, see you again same time next week. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.